Of course he will turn out bad. He comes from a broken home. He has a violent family, and they're surrounded by crime. That's a popular story that many people still buy into. Fortunately, there's another story, and it goes like this. Your inner world is stronger than your outer world, and you get to choose which one will direct your life. Hello, storytellers, and welcome to another opportunity to expand and enrich your world. One of the ways that you can definitely accelerate your growth is by choosing to read more wonderful books. And our sponsor, Audible, offers you a free downloadable audiobook of your choice. You choose from more than 180,000 titles. You get to keep it. And you also get an entire month free of all of Audible's service. Go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and choose a form of audio empowerment today. I really value your presence here, your loyalty by listening to this show again and again. And I'm going to ask you for a favor. Go to iTunes and leave a rating and a review for this show. One of the easiest ways to do it is to leave a comment about your biggest takeaway from today's episode. And that will help the show to gain more visibility. Then more and more people can have the opportunity like you to enrich their lives. Thank you in advance for doing that. Today's guest is a man who believed that his inner world could transform his outer world. He acted on that belief. Here's what happened. He became a mechanical engineer. Then he became CIO and COO for a major financial education company. He created his own seven-figure income and decided to empower others with his secrets of wealth creation and financial independence. You can say that he is a passionate freedom fighter who can teach you to triumph over lack thinking, debt, and poverty. His formula is the Millionaire's Manifesto. He reveals it in his book, the Millionaire Choice. You can learn more about that and grab your copy at www.themillionairechoice.com. His name is Tony Bradshaw. Get ready to learn how you can shape your personal and financial destiny. Tony, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Hey, thank you, Lewis. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So, Tony, who influenced you the most when you were a child? You know, I would have to say that would be uh, – I would name two people in that, but I'll, I'll start with my mother. Um, my mother was just a really tremendous woman. Uh, she really fought, and uh, because of her childhood and how difficult her childhood was, she really overcompensated for us as a family and uh, as she tried to bring us up. And just time and time again, now that I'm older – I just really appreciate that side of who she was as a woman and, you know, what she meant to me and, and to our household uh, as we kind of like struggled to, you know, break out of that middle income, lower middle income family lifestyle that we grew up in. And so what was very difficult about your mother's early life? Oh, man, th that list could just go on forever. Uh, wow. Just story after story. And then, you know, when you get when you realize that your mother comes from a broken home um, alcoholic father, alcoholic mother. Uh, I remember my mother telling me the story one time of, uh, as she was young, uh, seeing my father, grandfather, that is, uh, strangling my grandmother with a phone cord. Uh, fortunately, you know, she, she was able to get out of that situation and then, and then, uh, finally divorced him. But then she was left to raise four kids on her own. And, uh, you know, with a, not having a male role model in the house, it just wasn't a really good situation. Mm. Wow. Siblings or siblings were abusive, both physically and emotionally. And uh, even to the point, you know, my mother passed away a couple of years ago in 2016. And uh, she didn't talk to her siblings for, I would say, probably the last five to ten years she was alive. They just had no communication. And I really didn't think they were going to show up at the funeral. It was just, you know, it was just a real, 
really a bad situation, and and I got to witness some of that in a lot of different ways growing up. Wow. In the face of all that, did you have a childhood dream of who you wanted to be when you grew up? Uh, that that's an interesting question. I, I didn't quite uh, come anywhere close to that. I, I wouldn't say that those bad situations. My parents did a really good job of insulating me from that. Uh, although my father was alcoholic until I was about six years old. Um, crazy stories there. Um, just that I have some a few memories before he actually stopped drinking. Um, but I actually wanted to be a veterinarian. I just loved animals and wanted to be uh, around animals and. I didn't realize everything that went into being a vet, and then once I found out, I kind of stepped away from it. But, but that was kind of my dream. It's just, uh, you know, aspiring to be the veterinarian, and that's is about as far as I could go. My dad was a carpenter. My mom uh, had several different jobs and uh, managed convenience stores and things like that. Um, so, being a vet was kind of a really step up from where we grew up. I see. So, what were the the tough and scary things that you experienced in your early home life? Yeah, so probably the scariest thing that I can remember as a kid, I was probably about four or five years old, I, I believe. I'm, my age, you know, recollection might be a little off here, but I'm pretty sure it was about that age. I believe it was before my sister was born or she might have been a baby at the time. And uh, yeah, so this was before my dad stopped drinking. And uh, we went, he and I ran down to the store. And if I remember correctly, we were looking to uh, pick up some more alcohol. There were some friends at the house, friends of theirs, and he was run, making the beer run. And uh, on the way back, we got pulled over by a police officer, and of course, my dad had alcohol on his breath, and so uh, they took him off to jail and took me home. And so I got to ride in a police car to my house, where the you know at the time the biggest blackest cop I've ever seen <laughs> dropped me off at the front door, and uh, you know I'm a four or five year old little kid getting dropped off at the front door, and uh, just I just remember starting to cry, just like they took my daddy. And, uh, yeah, so just, you know, that, that's, that's kind of where it started. And then, uh, fortunately it got better after that, but, uh, that was kind of a low point. And for a little guy to have that memory stuck in his head, mm. not a really good thing to, you know, to carry with you. You have a dream about it? No, I don't, I'm not really. I mean, I was just very fortunate that my life, my, my sister, my mom and father just, uh, they had a really a life turnaround uh, when I was about six, seven years old, and, and just things really changed a lot, um, they still had the scars from their childhood, of course, uh, just social issues. Um, obviously, I, I had mentioned to you before talk, talking with you that my father dropped out of school when he was in ninth grade to support himself. And uh, so a lot of, uh, as I'm learning and growing up and getting smarter as an adult, just attachment issues just this kind of inability to really uh, connect with people because you you know you have these walls up or these smoke screens to protect you, and so both of my parents had that. I don't. We did not have close friends of the family like really you know what I would call uh, true friends that you could hang out with. As my mom and dad, they didn't have those kinds of friends in our lives, and uh, consequently, I kind of picked up on that and carried that forward into my adulthood as well. And so it's 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 something I'm working through personally, but uh, you know pick up that baggage of a I guess it's a social deficiency of sorts where you you know you just have trouble um, d developing deep friendships and you just have to, because of the trust issues and the insecurity issues and uh, needing to work through those. It's interesting you should bring that up because uh, you're not alone in that. Uh, it's a a cultural thing. Uh, certainly, I mean. It, it gets developed in the home, but it's been developed in a lot of homes in North America. And it's interesting what's happening right now in the world of entrepreneurship. And uh, there's a movement across the board to start showing up as vulnerable and as raw as you possibly can which means letting those barriers down. It's not easy, but um, th that is really, even in marketing, uh, to just let it all hang out, let people see the stuff that you've been trying so long to hide. Yeah, I think uh, when you say that, that's, it brings the thoughts and memories I had um, as a young guy doing my engineering job in my 20s, and I had a couple of... Uh, older gentlemen in their 60s you know now i'm not thinking that's that old because i'm getting up on on 50 
Um, but just watching those guys, you know, they had been around the block a few times. They were kind of at the just before their retirement years or where they wanted to, you know, go live life the way they wanted to live it. And um, I just remember observing those guys and realizing that they they didn't really have any pretenses. They really didn't care what people thought when they said anything. They just spoke it like it was and how they saw it. And it, it was very real, and very tangible. And I just remember uh, kind of being awestruck by him and going, you know what, I want to be like that one day. I want to be the guy that can say something and uh, in the right way and not really uh, care about what the repercussions are, but just to kind of let it all hang out there and, and speak it like it is. Well, you know, it's it's because the majority of people don't do it. If you start to do it, let's say in business, you're going to immediately grab attention and people are going to be gravitating toward you. So it's it's very powerful. It's a very, very powerful thing. Now, did you like school? I would say I was indifferent towards school. Um, I, I liked. I wouldn't say I disliked it at all. I mean, I liked it as far as like uh, getting my homework done. But I was a kind of an obedient child, you know, did what was expected of me for the most part. Um, as I got older and I just started learning more about myself, what I realized is I really never put forth my best effort. I only put forth my best effort at rare times, like when I wanted to get out of an exam. Uh, <laughs> You know, when I figured out if I had an A average, I wouldn't have to take the finals. I was all over it and uh, and driving for that A. But I just never really saw myself as an intelligent person or a smart person. Um, and so I didn't really try that hard. I didn't realize that if you just do your homework and work hard, uh, you can pull straight A's. It's just not something that was taught. My parents always said, do the best you can do. I never really did. I was really that B student, uh, CB student, A student, you know, like an average. You know, I think I pulled like a 3.2 or something like that when I graduated school and about the same in college, about a 3.2. And uh, so, you know, at times I had flashes of brilliance, but for the most part, it was kind of like cruise control. And uh, but I made it through and and uh, it was worthwhile doing. <laughs> What's really interesting is that you said that you didn't consider yourself that intelligent. And I actually challenge the criteria for intelligence that has been used in schools. Because I mean, I'm sure you've noticed that some of the most brilliant, innovative entrepreneurs of our time didn't fit into a school environment. A lot of them dropped out at an early age because what was happening there bored them. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. Then, yeah, and then they went like you just said. If you weren't that smart, then you wouldn't have been able to just easily figure out how to get straight A's. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, and and you know, just kind of what you're saying. You're, you're going down this vein, but this this research about uh, I think there's like six different types of intelligence. You know, emotional intelligence. Uh, you know, obviously intellectual, like books and things like that, but uh, musical intelligence. And uh, what we have in school today is just a cookie-cutter approach to education. And the reality is, you know, I've got six children, um, and one of my girls, my boys both did really, really well. They averaged pretty well. She has exceptional gifts in some areas, but she struggles tremendously with math, you know. And uh, my my wife also is not that strong in math. And I'm like, why am I wasting my daughter's time trying to shove algebra and some of these other topics down her throat? That she is not necessarily, I wouldn't say competent is not the right word, but she has giftings in other areas. We should be magnifying her giftings and developing her giftings than ex- trying to bring a, you know, a C average or a D average up to an, you know, a B. Absolutely. She's, she's going to be so much more successful if she's able to focus on the areas that she's gifted in. And so I, th- I know some of that kind of teaching and, and uh, thought processes are coming out more today. Yeah. Uh, but that stuff needs to really be pushed a lot more. Oh, I mean, look, I believe the educational system is about, look, the one that we know that's still hanging around was designed during the industrial age to create uh, worker drones, employees for, um, you know, um, average paying jobs. That's what it's about. But when a person has creativity, I mean, an algebra and geometry, great. You know, they might give you a discipline, but you're not really going to be using them unless you're in a field that demands them. Most of us are not. I'm holding a book in my hand by Robert Kiyosaki, Why A Students Work for C Students 
and B students work for the government. <laughs> That's an interesting one. I've always heard uh, average people run the world, so or something like that to that team. <laughs> yeah, it's quite an interesting conversation. What was the money conversation like in your home and your environment? Oh man, it was uh that was rough. I mean, I don't my parents did a great job of shielding us. Um so I didn't grow up thinking I was poor or you know, processing things that way. Um there were times that we definitely struggled. I remember I didn't know this until I was much older as an adult, but uh a year that my dad was uh the company he was at was on strike and made he made you know, worked a whole year, your whole life. You worked a whole year for your life, made seven thousand dollars, you know. And um and it's just not not good, not a good thing. Um, my mom worked a tremendous amount of money, a amount of time uh, to help us stay in school. But you know, bounce checks—that uh, was pretty common to see or hear about that, and hear my mom get upset where my dad would take ATMs out and not tell her they wouldn't record it. Next thing you know, they're bouncing checks. It might be three, four, five, six at a time, you know, and you're you're getting overdue check charges or over overruns uh, at cost of twenty to thirty dollars a pop. And then the bank's nailing you, and then the stores you're bouncing them at nail you. So now you're paying an extra 50, 60 bucks a check, um, and and it's taking money that you don't have. So you're you know you're scrambling. Um, water would get cut off periodically. You know my mom would need to take a shower, and my dad would grab a, grab a tool called a water key, go out, and turn the water meter back on because after you don't pay your water bill for a while, they come out and turn it off. And so they did that, and he'd turn it back on. Eventually, they padlock it. And I recall one time him cutting the padlock, turn it back on, and I believe they took the meter out eventually. And you know, you got to pay it. And so, uh, electricity we get off periodically, get cut off periodically, uh, just things like that. And then probably the, the thing I dealt with, you know, my mom and dad made a lot of sacrifices, um, and they they put us through a private school. It was a very inexpensive private school, and uh, but at the same time, we weren't paying the bills on time either so it was pretty common for me to show up to school you know every school new year and not have the bill paid not to have the tuition paid and then all of a sudden i don't have a homeroom like they don't even know i'm showing up you know I'm, I'm getting on the school bus and with the other kids and the school doesn't even know i'm coming because the bill hadn't been paid and so my name's not on the list and it was just got to be a cycle of going to the principal's office every year i still remember breaking down crying one time in sixth grade just because I didn't feel like I fit in, you know, I didn't. My name wasn't on the list like all the other kids. So, yeah, it may sound a little childish to some people, but uh, you know, it's kind of hard. Just you know, as a teenager trying to figure out what life's all about. No, that that doesn't sound childish at all. As a matter of fact, I mean, what's powerful about what you're describing is that the messages you kept getting were messages of lack, and in light of what you've accomplished, that's that's quite. Uh, uh, now we look. You can look at it and say it's quite admirable because that's a big obstacle that goes deep into your psyche. Those messages of lack, you know, worry about money. There's not going to be enough, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. A lot of people get held back all their lives from that. That's that's it's very powerful. Now, was there a period when you envisioned that your life would just be bleak in the future? You know, I I think about that. I'd have to say no. I mean, I was I was a pretty naive little child looking back. Um, the neighborhood, the people I grew up with, I don't know. I just had a different spark to me than a lot of the other kids. You know, the neighborhood I was in, it was not a great neighborhood. It wasn't like a you know a war zone or anything like that. But we had drug dealers that lived across the street, drug dealers that lived up the street. You know, gunfights a couple times, bullet hole in the front window, going into the kitchen, and. Uh, you know, it was life's an adventure. Friends, some of their parents were dealing drugs out of their house. I went down to a friend's house one time, and and uh, I don't know, you know, call it a protective spirit, you know, God watching over me or something like that. But uh, one time I knocked on some friend's door to, to go in and hang out with them, and uh, this r really weird odor came rolling out of the house, and I didn't know what it was. And they just looked at me and said, you don't need to be here. You can't come in right now. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, okay. Well, they're in there smoking pot, you know, and uh, they're they're probably like 13, 14, 15 years old. And uh, and the dad was a drug dealer, you know, and there's so many crazy stories there. But, uh, you know, somehow I didn't I didn't get into all that stuff, but it was all over my neighborhood. And uh, 
but I never really saw that as my future. Um, I think my parents, you know, just showing me the love and the sacrifice that they did, I think uh, really probably counteracted a lot of that negativity. What would you say was your darkest moment, Tony? Well, darkest moment. You know, to be honest with you, uh, Lewis, uh, my darkest moment probably started not as a child or as a young person, but, um, well, that's not exactly true. I guess it, I guess the roots of it started when I was young and then kind of culminated here in my adulthood. And, you know, I'm being transparent with you. Um, I was probably, oh, man, probably less than 10 years old, maybe like five, six, seven, eight, somewhere around there. Um, visiting my grandmother and and my uncle was a, a pornography addict and he lived with my grandmother. He had a he has a brain deficiency, so he's you know a sixty eight year old man now, but with the mind of a thirteen year old, and so he doesn't handle himself and he's always been like that. And so uh, he had some pornography and I got exposed to it when I was you know rather young. I remember laying in his bedroom, laying on the floor, he had magazines under the thing and just reading stories out of these magazines as a five six seven year old maybe eight you know i was a good reader and uh yeah and then when my grandmother found out she kind of made him throw everything away so once she found out that was going on she tossed all that and i didn't really i really wasn't affected by it at that time uh but what happened when i was 13 is i spent the night with a friend and uh his friend's dad they came from a different lifestyle than my mom and dad did or at least the life that we were living in. So we stayed stayed down at their house, camped out, three of the three of the guys. And we were about 13 years old. He decided to introduce us to pornography in a big way and uh, brought out about, you know, I don't know, a stack, probably about 18 inches tall, you know, a foot and a half tall of magazines. And as a young man getting exposed to that, I just, you know, I think he dropped him off about 9 o'clock. And, uh, yeah, I stayed up till the sun came up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the sun. All of a sudden, the sun's coming up. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't sleep all night. And uh, that was the hook, you know. And uh, the stuff is so destructive. And uh, well, as I'm learning as an adult, the impact that it really has. And a lot of times, you know, the churches, the people that are trying to deal with the pornography issue, that's just ruining families and ruining young men's and old men's lives alike. It's uh, they're fighting the wrong battle because the battle doesn't really. It's really not about the pornography. It's about our inner selves and who we are, and uh, you know the damage. So I suffered a lot of rejection, not from my parents, but from my environment growing up. And so it's the rejection that causes the real wound, and then the pornography and stuff is just the addiction that you know medicates the real wound. And so mm. in the churches and all the healing people trying to do the help, they're always focused on the pornography, and that's not the problem. The problem is is deeper. It's in your inner self. And so that's some of the things I'm digging out. Uh, I've been married 20 years, and it, when you say your darkest moment, you know, I, I got married. I was a virgin when I got married. I was excited about that. I had been able to keep myself from my wife till I was 28 years old. Um, and I thought, you know, wrongly so, I was probably a little bit arrogant about that. And... um kind of lifted self myself up a little bit haughty you know a lot of people don't make it that long and uh but that's something i aspired to do but it also gave me a false sense of security in my marriage and so um my wife and i've been married 20 years but i would say that uh, she's had a really rough go of it because i haven't been a great guy mm. you know mm. and uh i thought i was a good guy i thought i was doing all the right things but the reality was i wasn't and i had a lot of wounds and so my my darkest part in my marriage probably or my lifetime has probably happened just in the last five years, and uh, fortunately, you know, my wife and I have made it through it, and uh, and I'm getting the help and the healing that I need. So I'm you know being real transparent, seeing a therapist, and dealing with all my baggage from my childhood into my adult life. And this uh, last year or two has been just amazing. You know, probably the best two years of my entire life, but it's taken a lot of work to get there. Well, you know, listen, uh, what I'm hearing is that you're working hard and achieving self-awareness, which is uh, probably one of the most difficult things for a human being to do. So I applaud you. That's that's fantastic, you know, and you really can't demand more of yourself than that. You no know? way. You're not avoiding, you're going into the pain, and that's... 
like I said, something to be admired and applauded. Was there a pivotal person and or event that aimed you in a positive and growth direction in your life? Yeah, uh, my principal um, of my school, the private school that I went to, for whatever reason, that gentleman, uh, Dr. J. Frank Bruce, he took an interest in me, and I can't explain it, but he did. Um, I broke my leg when I was nine years old. He came to visit me at my house. Uh, My parents were two years behind on tuition payments, and he let me keep going to school. Um, When I decided to go off to college, I rode with him, him and his wife. And another uh, gentleman from the school, a childhood friend of mine, he took me to college, to, and it was the college that I ended up attending. And so uh, I believe uh, he sacrificed a lot for me and just showed a special interest. I didn't really get to talk to him that much when he really comes down to it. Um, I didn't have that many conversations with him, like personal conversations or like mentoring sessions or anything like that. But the the effort that he did in putting into founding and putting into that school, but also allowing me to continue there and you know the interactions that I had when I was when he was available, uh, I would consider those priceless in my life and uh, really shaped me into who I ended up becoming. Because a human being put such belief in you. Yeah, I think invested some time, but you know, um, yeah, I would agree. Yes. Yeah. No, that's powerful. You hear that often. I mean. Uh, which is a reminder to us listeners, storytellers. Sometimes we think, well, you know, who am I? I don't make an impact. That's a bad story because just reaching out to another human being and showing belief in them is something that is, it's a very powerful seed that can grow into something very beautiful. You know, mm-hmm. so it's a wonderful story. Now, you made a life-changing decision at the age of 25. What was it? Yeah, so life was was pretty good. I mean, I had no reason to think life wasn't good, right? I was uh, making good money, engineer out of college. I'd finished my college degree, living at home with my parents in a studio bedroom apartment. Rent was cheap, $200 a month. Um, and so I, I had no reason to, like, you know, venture out on my own. Things were great. Uh, making good money, forty grand a year. I think I made $39,000 my first year out of college, and which was more than my parents had been making. So, young man, I'm like, hey, I'm doing pretty good. I'm making more money than mom and dad. And uh, then I got my W-2 check, and I saw that $39,000, and, and it just hit me. You know, I'm a math guy. Um, I can add numbers up pretty well. And, wow, I'm like, where did all that money go? $39,000. It, it didn't take long. I took inventory, and it didn't take very long. I looked around that room, looked at the apartment. I had a car that was financed in the parking lot, the driveway. Had a stereo that I paid cash for, three, four, five hundred bucks, some speakers that I dropped a lot of money on, uh, a computer that I financed, and a credit card, and you know, a bed that I'd made with my own hands. And I'm like, that's not good. And I don't ever want to do that again like I can never repeat that again in my entire life and so it was that catalyst when you know getting that w-2 having that thought process is what I call financial awakening that really sent me over the edge so I would go to, went to the bookstore and, and decide you know learned about money spent about 90 days reading all the magazines and stuff I could get my hand on because I had this education background right all this investment my parents had put into me and uh, that's what I knew how to do study read, learn, and apply it. And so that's what I did. And about 90 days after I started learning, I'm like, you know what? Money is really just a math problem. I can do this, and I can do the math, and I can be a millionaire by the time I'm 40 years old. So I call that making your millionaire choice, having your financial awakening. And then once you have that, making that millionaire choice, that decision to become a millionaire and build wealth. Hmm. Now, when you said you were looking around the room and saying, I never want to do that again, you mean... Putting your money into the kinds of things that you were, it was total waste. <laughs> okay, I made thirty nine grand, but I was uh, sixteen thousand dollars in debt. So okay. that was a in my mind that was a fifty five thousand dollar move in the wrong direction, and it only took me 12, <laughs> twelve months to get there. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So that was your millionaire choice. I love that. Now it was a choice to be financially awake. Now, 
did you have to struggle with a lot of doubts as you were, you know, after you made that decision to actually move toward the reality that you wanted? Not really. I mean, I had a couple setbacks, you know, I had, when I put my millionaire plan together at 25, I didn't really plan on getting married. I didn't account for that one. (laughs) (laughs) And then, uh, we had one kid, then two, then three, then four, and then five, and then six. And I didn't really plan on those. I had no idea what that would cost. So none of that stuff was in the equation. So while I had setbacks that caused us to have to make adjustments, uh, I just kept moving forward. It's it's kind of just how I'm wired, I guess. Uh, and I could probably get that from my dad because my dad's just a, a work machine. He just he moves forward, and that's what he does. You know, whatever the obstacles are, he just keeps moving forward. Um, I even see that now, you know, with some of the struggles I faced, you know, not just in my marriage, but in work life and things like that, where, you know, you suffer these setbacks, but I only know one place to go and that's forward. Mm, Going back, I don't really like looking in the back, in the back view, unless, you know, there's something to learn from it. Uh, other than that, it's kind of a distraction. I agree. So what are millionaire choices and how can people start making them today? Yeah, so I would say the the number one millionaire choice, and I, you know, as I was writing this book and looking at other material, you know, that I've, that's out there that I've read for a while, I really asked myself, what could I give to the world that's a little different than what everybody else has given to the world? And so, the one of the big things that I think is so important, and it's what I did. It was really one of my first steps. You know, after I had my financial awakening, I got money smart. I went and started studying about money. And so putting this in simpler terms is like this. We go to school for from K through 12, and we learn what? We learn English, math, science, history, a couple other subjects. And we spend 12 years learning that, 12, 13 years learning that. Then we go off to college and learn a lot of the same stuff. We're in there. Are we taught about finances and how to manage our money and how to do the right things with it to build wealth? And the answer is you're not. And so people consequently don't take time to learn those things, but yet that, I would say, is just as important, if not more important, than most of the subjects that are being taught in school. And so that was one of the first things I wanted to encourage people to do is get money smart. And once they start their their journey to learn about money, to realize that that's a lifelong journey. You know, I'm, I'm coming up on 50 years old. I'm 48 right now. Two more years and I'll be there. And I don't know everything about money. And so I know elements that allowed me to become a millionaire, but I would have to go seek out counsel from other people. So I still have much more to learn about it over time. And so that was one of the big things uh, I would tell people to do is that you, you just need to start learning. You need to take time and learn and carve, carve time out of your schedule. Unfortunately, too many people spend a lot of time watching TV, you know, and, and that takes away from their time that they should be using for other things like learning about money. So besides your book, which will be a a powerful learning tool for them, can you recommend any other resources? What about Robert Kiyosaki's material? Yeah, so I love Robert's stuff. Uh, He At the company I was at previously, we talked a lot about him and his uh, real estate uh, focus on real estate. Rich Dad, Poor Dad's a great book. I've heard a lot of people use that book uh, to get started in real estate, and they start there. Um, that's a good one. Um, another great one is Grant Cardone. Grant Cardone's going to pump you up. He's got a great podcast, got a lot of great resources. Um, he's going to be in real estate, but he's also going to be in sales and some other things. Um, there's network marketing out there, but you know, really get into a cycle of just reaching out for new material. There's just so much material available. You know, find a mentor and just keep keep at it over time until you know you get a little bit smarter about it, and then you can apply it. The one thing I would say about a lot of the guys that people shouldn't really get into a rut is um, most of the financial guys that are out there are teaching. They're teaching exactly what they know, which in many cases is like one revenue stream or one income stream. So one might teach about you know, whether it's budgeting or mutual funds. Another one might teach about day trading. Another one might teach about flipping houses. Another one might teach about um, you know, rental properties and leveraging for rental properties. The reality is all of that stuff works in some way if you do it right. Um, So you want to spend time learning about all of them. Don't get so locked in on one that you only know one thing, but become proficient 
in a couple of different things. And they call it, you know, multiple income stream kind of concepts to where you don't, you can fall back on some things. If something goes south on you, you can fall back on something. Some people, they end up getting leveraging themselves, over leveraging themselves in real estate and get burned. And so they have to find a new thing to fall back on when that happens. Have you? I love that. It's great advice. Have you ever played Robert Kiyosaki's game, uh, Cash Flow? No, I haven't. I've heard that name before, but I probably ought to look at it since you brought it up. It's a, it's a board game, and what's beautiful about it is that it what it does is it begins to simulate real-life scenarios where you're forced to make money decisions. And I've played it, and what's amazing about it is that Although it's a game and you're playing with quote unquote fake money, mm-hmm. the emotions get so strong that you begin to get knots in your stomach when you have to make these decisions because you know that they can make or break you. And you learn a lot about yourself and about what kinds of decisions will move you forward and which won't. It's a, it's a really worthwhile game to explore. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll check it out. I've- I've played Life, and we've played Payday around the house here, So, but those are probably not as realistic or as uh, real life as probably they could be. Mm-hmm. Now, how can people begin to break their bad money habits? Because well, I, I would say we all have them. Yeah, I think the thing, there's a couple of things, is you know realizing where your money habits are. I think one of the number one ones you need to break is you know how you spend your money. So a couple of, and I'll just list a few of these. Is uh, money people don't keep track of their money, and because of that, they don't ever make headway. And then they burn through their twenties, and they burn through their thirties, and hopefully they wake up in their forties, but maybe not. Maybe it's their fifties, and by then they're scared to death. Right? Retirement is that crazy word that when you're in your twenties you don't care about it. When you're in your fifties you're scared to death of it. And um, so. The first thing I would tell somebody if they want to break their bad money habits is you got to start thinking about where your money's going and you got to organize it in a way that's actually manageable for you. And the way I do that is I create just four buckets. I want a very a very simple bucket, a budget to uh, and I call it a spending plan. And that would be organize your living money into a category. You know, it's it's what everything you have to spend to live on. If you got to buy food, you got to buy water, you got to, you know, pay for the electricity, the car, those kinds of things. Things that you have to have to operate your daily life. And then you're going to put that in one bucket, and that's your what I call your living money. Your next most important category is what we call wealth money. And this is the category that everybody tends to skip out on when they're in their 20s and 30s and you know and hopefully wake up. And that's the money that's going to actually turn you into a millionaire or help you build wealth. And the reason I break those two out and call those the two most important is because a lot of times people are going, oh, I need you know four or five thousand dollars a month to live on. I don't have any money for wealth money, or I have only a hundred bucks a month to put back, or a hundred bucks a year, or something like that. I really want to get people to turn their thinking upside down when they start messing with their money and, and deciding how to you know invest it and spend it. I really want people to set specific goals and start thinking about how they can increase that wealth money as much as they possibly can. And it's not because you're a hoarder. It's because wealthy people can help people in need and help more people in need. And so you're not just building wealth for yourself. You're building wealth for the ability to help people when they need it. And so by by breaking the budget down into those two categories, the spending plan down into those two categories, you get a real good visual on how out of balance things are. So if you're spending $5,000 a month on living expenses and nothing in wealth money, you're kind of out of balance. Hmm. If you're spending – 5000 on living money, but 2500 on wealth money, or maybe 1000 on wealth money, let's make that at 12000 a year, that's pretty a pretty good balance. I know that I know how long it will take you to become a millionaire if you put ten to $12,000 a year back into your uh, you know, wealth money or you know, investments and things like that. That's a mathematical calculation that can be fairly predictable. And so it's with that kind of mindset that you can say, hey, I can be a millionaire and I can be a millionaire by this date if I put this amount of money back. And then the last two categories are play money and other money. And so play money is, you know, your gym memberships, things like that, things you don't really have to spend. Maybe you go to a movie, maybe you eat out. Uh, Those are all flexible spending accounts. And then other money is where I choose to put things like gifts and birthdays. They're kind of like they're nice to do. But again, if push comes to shove and you need to tighten up your your spending plan, cut some things, that's going to get cut. Now, I don't recommend you cut your wife's birthday present out of the other money. <laughs> don't, don't say, that's not going to give you a good uh, a good uh, result. 
<laughs> now, it's interesting that in the play money, you included the gym. Why? Because that is essential to people's health. Yeah, I put it in there because it's still flexible. Like, it is something that I would say is uh, you need it. But if you compare it to food, which one's more important? Or you compare it to heat if you live in a cold area or AC if you live in a hot area. Um, so those are kind of like required spendings and then flexible spendings. So, And I agree with you, though. Health is important. I've just started title boxing with my wife two months ago. And you start to realize how out of shape you really are when you start going to do title boxing. Mm-hmm. What's title boxing? Oh my gosh, it's you you should check it out. They have about 50 punching bags set up in a room and you have a, a personal trainer that basically goes in there and rallies the troops and you're doing moves on these these punching bags. You're learning how to throw, you know, crosses and hooks and jabs and uppercuts and and it's a, you know, a 45 minute to an hour workout and you can go multiple times per week. We could choose to go twice a week, but it's uh it's quite the scene, believe me. It's quite a, quite a lot of fun and quite exhausting. Mm. I don't really enjoy gym memberships. They kind of bore me, so I like to be active. Okay. <laughs> I go to the gym five days a week, and uh, I'm addicted to it, and I'm happy that I am. But, you know, uh, I get what you're saying. Now, how can a vision of retirement actually limit a person's quality of life? Yeah, so um, as I was writing my book, I was, you know, because I'm, I'm a relatively young guy. I've thought about it and prepared for retirement, but... Um, you know, just observing people, having conversations, and then watching what's going on in people's lives. Um, it really retirement, I think, is just such a bad word. You know, the twenty, the younger people don't want to deal with it. The older people, it's scary. Um, they didn't prepare for it properly. Uh, it's an, it's kind of an illusion, you know. And and beyond that, uh, my mom passed away at age sixty-seven. My mother-in-law passed away at age seventy. The gentleman I worked for as an engineer, um, he was planning on retirement, and then he, accident, he accidentally passed away. He, he had a medical issue that came up suddenly, and he passed away six months after he found out he had this medical issue. And he was 65, so he was planning to work another year and then retire. And so when you think about that and you think about where the retirement age is for the government, depending on what year you were born, you know, between ages of 62 and 70 – Everybody I just named passed away inside of the government years of retirement that are labeled right now to get your maximum Social Security benefits. And so that's the mindset is that you're going to retire in this you know age bracket where you're at, and then you're going to live out your golden years. And I just don't like it. I don't like the concept. So I believe that people ought to look and think about ret retiring or living life the way they want to live it. When can you live life the way you want to live it? If that has to be in your 60s or 70s, then so be it. But what could you do to move that age up quite a bit? When I made my millionaire plan or my millionaire choice at 25, my goal was really to do that at 40. Now, I was a little bit naive around that, but it was the best information I had at the time. And so my goal was to say, hey, I've got enough money at 40. I can retire. At that time, a million dollars seemed like a lot of money, and it is. But for every for every average everyday Joes, everyday people, my and my – advice would be what can you do to move that up you know 59 and a half is the first year that you can actually draw on your social security or retirement benefits out of your 401k and iras without getting any tax penalties so why not make that your low bar you know if my mom had made that her low bar then she would have had a good seven years of uh you know living life the way she wanted to live it and wouldn't so. the next step you say would, would you say that the next step up would be to circumvent that altogether and create an economy for yourself so that these limited sources of money that the government ha you know holds in front of you are almost irrelevant. Yes, absolutely. Like why do you even need it? You know, and that's and and I think, you know, coming from a lower middle income family with the money that we had, the idea of making $100,000 a year was a, such a foreign concept to me. Um you know, I had a dream of becoming a millionaire, but I was going to do it on a $50,000 a year salary. I wasn't going to bust it, uh, you know, get much above that. I just didn't, it was beyond my ability to consider making that kind of money. Now, my income obviously grew well past that, but at that time, I was kind of what I call income lock or income stagnation. 
which is where you're locked into this mindset, this hourly mindset or this income area because that's what you know. You don't really think, hey, I could double my income. But the reality is people do it every day. And so your income is really only limited by you and what you think you can make. It's really your own limitation. It's self-imposed. I agree. Absolutely. Now, would you say that there's one belief about money that you would consider the most destructive? Uh, well, the one I would say that affects people and keeps them from really uh, reaching their full potential is, you know, you go back to money is the root of all evil. Uh, I think people have a, a wrong view of money and wealth. Specifically, I'll go more specifically, you know, even as growing up where I did, you have really two thought processes. One is I will never be wealthy or all wealthy people are bad and greedy. Mm. And the reality is both of those are, are lies and they're wrong. Both of them are wrong. I'm not greedy. I can tell you that. Everybody that knows me can tell you that. And I didn't think I could be wealthy when I was young, before 25, but after that I realized I could be. And because I made that decision, I was able to hit it. I'm no more capable than anybody else out there. I can I can guarantee you that. My upbringing, the places I've been, I didn't go to a, you know Harvard University. I went to a little bitty small podunk school. You know, it's it's not you know it's not it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't like the super education. It was fine and it served me well, but it didn't equip me above and beyond anybody else. But yet, I still was able to do it. I love that. That's really great, Tony. Now, why did you choose ten millionaire keys to write about in your book? Well, I, interestingly enough, as you start thinking about writing a book, and this is the first one I've written, but I plan on writing several more. You come up with like, well, what am I going to write here? You know, what's going to make it different? And uh, I thought about, I really just went back to what I did. You know, at 25 years old, what was it that made me into a millionaire? And it just worked out to be 10. You know, when you go through the, the financial stuff that needs to be done, the uh, everything that played into it, uh, it just came out to be 10. And so, and you know, as well, since you've looked at the book, Lewis, is that it's not just all about money, right? I don't even start the, the 10 keys out with money. I started out with character and how important that is because that's the foundation of what made me into a millionaire was a stronger character uh, of who I was as a person. And I got that from my parents. You know, I didn't get money from my parents, but I got my work ethic, my discipline, my focus, you know, those things, integrity and response, sense of responsibility all came from my parents. And, uh, and some, you know, obviously expanded and, and built on, but that was the foundation that allowed me to take those next steps into the, you know, the other nine millionaire keys that actually turned out. And uh, storytellers, to find out the rest of them, get the book. Now, it's true. What are the four factors other than money that are vital vital to a millionaire mindset? Yeah, so I would say your character is going to be one of the biggest ones, uh, you know, and I just mentioned those. But beyond that, how you use your time, a lot of people make excuses for why they don't have wealth or they don't make money or whatever. You know, list the excuse out and you're going to have it. I have to deal with this excuse all the time in my house when I ask people why they didn't get stuff done. And they say I didn't have time. And the reality is you always find time to do what you want to do. That's the reality. It's for everybody. That's the same answer for everyone. You always find time to do what you want to do. I guarantee it. Whether it's sitting on the couch watching TV, uh, going playing golf, whatever it is, you always find time. And so how people use their time is critical in their ability to build wealth. And so uh, unfortunately, you know, there's uh, the statistic is over 100 people, average American spends over 120 hours a month watching television. That's a full-time job. That's right. So, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, it's really close to a full-time job. And so they're 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 just burning their time and that's they should be using that to get well. The other ones would be, you know, getting smart and educated about your money, just learning. You're going to be a lifelong learner, but even on top of that, you need to find a money mentor, you need to, you know, find somebody who can help you, uh lead you, guide you, just like you're doing with the story Lewis and and your podcast. You're a tremendous mentor. And so you're looking for somebody that can help you uh, do that thing with your money. And then the other would be, you know, plan. You know, you need to have a plan. You can't just have knowledge. If you don't have a plan, you're not you're not going to go anywhere. Hmm. Wonderful advice. Now, what is your favorite book besides your own? I'm partial to. Uh, I like. There's so many good books out there, but I'm really partial here lately to. Uh, Jim Collins, Good to Great, mm -hmm. 
book. Uh, I just I find myself quoting a lot of things out of that. I've watched that book transform the organization that I was in, just with some of the things that Jim shared in his book uh, about business and you know uh, how to how to grow a business. But also, there's just a lot of good wisdom in there that helps you cut through uh, all the the junk that's in a business that kind of holds a business back. And so he helps you know bring that stuff into focus. And I think get get really good results. And so we've applied that book in several ways and, and been able to see some growth from it. Yeah, I like that book myself. I remember being very impressed when I first read it. Why should people consider wealth creation a responsibility and a duty? Well, I believe that wealth, and this is where people get hung up, if you're going to build wealth, don't just build it for yourself. And so one of the greatest things about having money that I've really enjoyed is just having people that need it around me and being able to help them when they're in a tight spot. Not just, you know, enabling people or giving money to people. You know, that's not a good thing because that doesn't help anyone. But when somebody's really in a pinch and, and, and really needs the help, you know, we had a, a, some friends of our family that were in a really tight spot. Um, they had lost their house. They were you know, without going into too many details, living, you know, homelessly, really, just being honest, three kids living homelessly, and we were able to step in and bail them out and uh, give them uh, some solid footing uh, just to kind of get their their life and their family. And that happens a lot, and a lot, unfortunately, a lot of people that are out there uh, don't have anybody to fall back on. And so I like to envision a world where, you know, everybody around here has financial knowledge and everybody's working on the same goal to build wealth. And then when somebody does pop up like that, that needs the help, then we're available and ready to stand in. And so um, we're not, you know, scraping nickels together to try to help them, but we're able to really step in. Mm. And I think that just makes a better world. You know, I think it's a responsibility to to have wealth so that you can make the world a better place and mm. help people when they need it. Yeah, that's wonderful. It's a very, very strong and attractive belief. What is your favorite quote? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna fudge on this one and go back to Jim Collins again out of the book, and uh, and I think it's because it's it's kind of like where I see myself going with this millionaire choice of what I'm trying to do uh, with this brand and this business, and that is uh, good is the enemy of great, and so you could apply that to business, but when I think back about being in college and in high school. And, you know, the grades, I was a B student, but I had the potential to be an A student, you know, and uh, and I just didn't put the effort in that I needed to because good was the enemy of great. In my situation, good was my enemy, uh, and I could have been great in those situations, but good was where I was at. Uh, when I look at my sporting career, you know, as a soccer player, uh, it was kind of the same thing, not quite as much because I did I did push it a lot harder there. But I, I just want to see that. I really want to live my life uh, in the great zone, not in the good enough zone. And so the businesses that I work with, the people I work with, I want to see that for them as well, you know, employees and, and anybody that I deal with. That is wonderful. It's, uh, it's, very, it, it's just, just hearing those words is inspiring and uplifting. Thank you. Now, if you could wave a magic wand, Tony, and change just one thing in the world, what would it be? That's a big question, Lewis. <laughs> yeah, well, but yeah, okay, fine. It can be big or it can just be, that's what I would change. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, you know what? You know what? I, yeah. I, think, I think I know what it would be. I think I know what it would be because I almost blew it. And that is this. I wish that families that started together could stay together. Okay. And the reason I'd say that is because uh, I can't imagine how much damage I would have done to my children if I would have let my marriage fall apart. And uh, but I had to put the effort in to to get it healthy again because I had I had neglected it. It's kind of like having a house and not painting the shutters and not you know tending to the weeds. And it before long it looks like it ought to be condemned. I had I had let I had let my marriage get into that kind of shape, and it just took an enormous amount of work to kind of dig out of that. And if you don't mind me sharing, uh, the reason I, this is so important to me is um, 
Well, we decided uh, back in 2015, my wife and I decided to go to marriage counseling. And I asked her, she wasn't real, she didn't want to go because she felt very vulnerable. And I just looked at her and said, honey, do you want the next 18 years to look like the last 18 years? And she said, no, I don't. And I said, we need to go. And so our first marriage counseling session uh, went pretty good. It was was a great session. And uh, the marriage counselor looked at us and said, when would you like to come back? And I said, I don't know, next month. You know, these things are usually monthly, right? And my wife spoke up and said, uh, what do you got open next week? (laughs) That began weekly marriage counseling for six months. Mm. And so we went every week for six months. And I talked to some of my friends. I've got quite a few friends that have been through that. And it's just devastated their families and their lives. And, you know, some sometimes it probably needs to end. uh, But I won't be the judge of that. But one thing I think is people don't work hard enough to get things back on the right track. And I just was, I just refused to, to like quit. And even though I was not in a good place emotionally, I wanted to fight and fight through it. And, uh, yeah. And so we're in a much, much better place today, but it took a lot and lot of hard work. And, uh, yeah, so that would, that would be the thing I would want to fix. I would want to equip people to be able to, 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 to fight through that and to be able to keep their marriage. I just think it's better for the kids, better for, you know, the family and the people overall in general. Beautiful. Thank you. How can people contact you? Yeah, thanks for asking that. Uh, TheMillionaireChoice.com. TheMillionaireChoice.com is where all of the book and all the the financial educational materials and things that we're working on exist. Um, If you want to follow me as an individual, uh, TonyBradshaw.com, uh, personality site. That's where my, the rest of my material is. And I, I blog daily there, but it, you know, it may be money related. It may not be money related, but that, that's it. And do you have any final thoughts for our storytellers today? Oh, uh, just keep, just keep getting up every day and, and just try to become better the next day than you were the day before. Just keep investing in yourself and, and, uh, trying to make things happen. It's, uh, it's just a wonderful life and a wonderful place and just give it everything you got, you know, Thank you, Tony. This has been both an inspiring interview and, for me, very grounding. When I listen to you, I feel more centered. I want to thank you for that. And thank you again, storytellers, for spending time today with me and Tony Bradshaw. Pay this one forward. Let people know that they can hear it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website ChangeYourStoryPodcast.com. Always remember that you have a free gift waiting for you at that website. If you haven't gotten it already, go there now, download the ebook that I've created for you, Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. You will never Listen to a podcast of mine where I will not emphasize books. Reading, reading, reading. Once again, in this podcast, we spoke about some amazing books. Good to Great was one of them. Go back and you don't even have to go back. You can just choose any book that you want that you've been thinking about reading that will improve and expand your life and take advantage of the offer from our sponsor audible for a free audiobook of your choice go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and download that free audiobook which of course you can listen to in your car, while you're working out, multitasking, doing anything. And, of course, you get to choose your book from more than 180,000 titles. Tony left us, like most of our guests do, with many, many valuable nuggets to improve our quality of life. I would emphasize that for next week, you go back and... Pay attention closely to what he said about the four buckets that you can create 
to begin to immediately improve your financial life. What I love about his explanation was that it's so specific and so simple that if you're really serious about taking your financial life to another level by having more income and less stress, this is a no-brainer. It's very, very easy to do. And if you're resisting at all, kickstart your action with the question, how can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.